Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Glad you're here today. My name is Chris Causey. I'm the lead pastor, and um, we're so thrilled that you joined us this like post-Mother's Day on this incredibly beautiful weekend. Um, before we get started, just want to say a, a little special happy birthday to Jason Hodges, who is um, beautiful as a man and as a brother and a dear friend. So he's actually out of town this week um, visiting family members. We've got a sister-in-law graduating, and um, so I knew he'd probably be watching it right now um, in the midst of travel. And so just wanted to say that, love him, grateful for him. Jason and I have known each other a long time. He looks better than I do, and age has been kinder to him. And so I just think a a humble person has to be able to acknowledge that. Um, And so love you. Happy birthday, bro. I'm so excited uh, for you and your family. So with that said, because I wanted to make sure I gave him a card that was like a physical like ah, card. Um, so we're in the middle of a series called Spent. And the thesis of Spent as a series is this, that you and I have been sold a lie that to get the most out of life, we need to add more to it. That to get the most out of life, that we're going to get the most out of life by adding more to it. But the reality is, is that is a lie and it falls short and it leaves us feeling spent. That actually the key to getting the most out of life is found in the pursuit of an intentional less. And that we talked about that from a time standpoint, from calendaring and scheduling and all the details around that. And it's also true in our finances, right? That the more we choose to live on less, the better we are financially. Because if you live in that place of spending more than you make for long enough, you are literally spent. And today I want to press into money, but to do it, I want to talk about it a little differently. I don't want to get into the mechanics of money, um, though those are really important. I, I think that there's this level of habits around our finances that are really important and they're critical. And in fact, in a few minutes, I'll tell you about something that we have for you that's free that we're doing in a couple of weeks. I'm really excited about that will help you with the habits around finances, no matter where you are in your financial journey. But today I want to kind of press a little bit deeper because in order to deal with the money topic and this idea of spent, I want to actually go to the heart. Um, The Bible speaks a lot about finances. There's over 2,000 specific Bible verses connected to money and finances. And it's because money is an integral part of life. Everything that happens in this world has money as a transactional element to it. And so it is an important part of life. And that's why there's over 2,000 different teachings throughout scripture around this idea of finance. But one of the things that becomes increasingly clear as you study those different passages is that the Bible cares more about the heart underneath than it does about the habits above. And I would actually argue in the midst of this thesis around pursuing less, there is one more that I would encourage you to chase after. There is one more worth looking for when it comes to the realm of finances and relationships. And that more is a one word a word that is a word that's not a very attractive word. We don't use it a lot. It's 
almost used sometimes as a derogatory term. It's, it means the opposite of ambition. It's a word that is used multiple times in a few sentences in a New Testament letter. It's written by a guy, to give you a little bit of a backdrop, who um, was probably the, one of the most ambitious people to have ever lived. And I say that because you, you may think of Jeff Bezos and Amazon and the idea of like, we're going to ship to every single person any random object from uranium to underwear on any place on planet Earth. And it's true. I've ordered uranium from Amazon and I've never ordered underwear, but I, I know you can get those on there too. Like you can get anything on Amazon. But there was a man named Saul, who was so ambitious in the first century that he was so offended as a brilliant Jewish scholar that he was determined to stamp out Christianity. And so he sets into motion this, this systematic process where he's going town to town to eradicate the world of this new kind of her- like heresy in the Jewish theology known as Christianity or the way as it was called back then. And Saul, in the course of doing that, has a surprising moment where he becomes a Christian. No one saw that one coming because, I mean, it would have been the essential equivalent of an Osama bin Laden. I mean, he was, to the early Christian church, a terrorist. He would come in and he would destroy. And the early Christian church would have never imagined this man who was kind of hell-bent on destroying the church, becoming one of its biggest advocates. But that's what happens. He becomes the biggest messenger and the most prolific writer in the New Testament. Paul has this ambition to stamp out Christianity that when he becomes a Christianity, now is fueled towards making Christianity spread to the ends of the earth. He's determined as a one-man machine to take the, the whole concept of the gospel and the Christian message to every corner of the earth. Jesus had picked 12 disciples to initiate that. One of them betrayed him because of financial reasons as one of the reasons. Um, he, sold, he sells Jesus out for about 20 pieces of silver. And Jesus had given them the mission, go into all the world. And you fast forward, and they haven't really gotten very far. There was this metric that Jesus, he was like, you're going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? And Jerusalem was the city they were in. Judea was essentially the state that was present. Samaria was the state that bordered them. And and so as they're kind of doing the check, Jerusalem, yeah, check, we've gotten there. Judea, uh, yeah, check, we've done Jerusalem. Yeah, Judea, we've, we've got a couple people telling people about Jesus there. Samaria, eh, we don't really like them, but one or two guys have gone over there and started that early work. Ends of the earth, not so much. Here's Jesus' original followers. They literally hear him say that. I'm just saying that if a guy who predicts his death comes back from the dead tells me to go and do something, I'm probably going to go ahead and buy that bus ticket and do it right away. Right? But these guys are like, ah, Jesus didn't, I mean, does he really mean the ends of the earth? Do we even know what that means? And then here comes Saul into the room, who's now Paul, because Paul means small. He chose that name to represent his humility and the transformation that had occurred in his life. Saul meant great. Paul meant small. And so Paul comes in the room and he's like, hey guys, I have a solution. You, you 11, take Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. I'll take the ends of the earth. That'll be on me. You guys take the first three. I, I got R-O-W. I got the rest of the world. Check. All right. I mean, and then literally he sets out. The New Testament primarily is a documentation of Paul's ambitious move 
to make Jesus known every single place on planet Earth. And these letters that he writes capture a lot of this advancement that he's making along the way. But see, something happens in the midst of this. This ambitious man is arrested. He's thrown in prison because of some technicalities in Roman law at the time. He's able to appeal to Caesar because he's a Roman citizen. All Roman citizens in the day, whenever they were um, put in um, a courtroom situation, could appeal to Caesar, who was Supreme Court of the day. And so this is what he does. Paul, in a series of escalating trials that look exceedingly bad for him, says, I appeal to Caesar. And they say, okay. And he's shipped to Rome. Appealing to Caesar is a very expensive thing. Legal fees are a crushing thing today. It was a very crushing thing back then. Our, our legal system, judicial criminal system, will at least provide food and water for people who are in prison today. But in first century Roman Empire, your basic necessities of life were not guaranteed. You had to depend on the goodness and the kindness of other people or your family in order to eat, to have water, to have clothing. All of those basic necessities the Roman Empire could care less for. If you died in prison, it was your fault, not theirs. And so Paul spends two years in prison going through this appeal process from 60 AD to 62 AD. While in prison, he writes a few letters to a variety of churches because Paul's got a concern for these churches he's helped to start around um, Asia Minor and into the European continent. And one of those letters, at the end of the letter, in this letter to the church in Philippi, what we call the book of Philippians, because Philippi was the region in this specific city, um, He writes this letter, and at the end of the letter, he utters and writes down a series of sentences that are mind-blowing around this idea of contentment. He shows us in the pursuit of contentment. He shows us how. And he gives us some insight, because I know that no matter where you are, no matter what you're experiencing in your financial life, your relational life, that contentment can make a difference in that pursuit away from spent into a place of margin. That contentment is something that you and I can experience as we move towards margin in our life. And Paul is the perfect teacher for it. He shows us that contentment can exist simultaneously with a global ambition. Contentment is not complacency. It's not apathy. It's different. It's an internal sense, an internal security and stability that's able to be satisfied in any situation and circumstance. And when you want that, to be able to go through your life and on bad days, on good days, on blizzard days, on rainy days, on sunny days, on days when... You're walking through a devastation from a health standpoint to your financial, to your relational areas in life when your spouse walks out or when your future spouse walks in. Wouldn't it be amazing to have something inside at the core of you are that was unchanged by the circumstances that kept changing around you? And Paul is the perfect person to speak to this. Because he experiences it all. In chapter 4, verse 10, he's writing to to this church in Philippi who had kind of a logistical backdrop to this letter, had provided and desired to provide some of those basic necessities for him. 
They had wanted to send um, papyrus so that he could write. They wanted to send food and clothing. This is why he begins in this final section. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. They had this concern, but there was some uh, to to get a letter from or to get a package from Philippi to um, Rome. Amazon didn't exist yet. There was not a two day prime feature at that point. Um, It was about a two month journey via kind of official Roman courier services. And that's if they didn't stop riding the entire day. I mean, this was an incredibly long journey. And so they had concern, but they had some barriers to actually meeting those concerns. And Paul's just reassuring him. He's like, look, I know that you care about me. You just didn't have an opportunity, and it's okay. And so he's dealing with that. And then he moves into this. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. He's like, look, I'm not speaking to your desire to meet my needs because I'm in need. In fact, and this is when he goes off on this tangent. He says, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. It's a powerful sentence. It's a powerful sentence I wish I could write about my life. And if it was a sentence that you could write about your life, I'm sure it would be transformative for you as well. He says, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have a plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul unpacks in the course of these sentences and in his example um, three different levels in a master class that Paul is about to give us in contentment. There are three specific kind of courses in this master class, three different sessions that get increasingly more challenging and a little bit more difficult. The first course that Paul gives us, actually the first thing that Paul gives us that I think is really helpful is Paul says twice in the midst of these three or four sentences, these words, I have learned. I have learned. Which tells me that we can learn. Contentment is not some abstract thing that some monks living up at the top of a mountain were born with or have gotten some special glowing divine shipment and and now it just happens paul says no i've learned how to be content and i want to teach you even in the midst of this writing and the first course that he gives us this 101 is really paul's way of thinking that's embodied in the words that he writes see paul had figured out that contentment is a way of thinking. It's a learned way of thinking that in the course of even writing certain words, it, it filters out. It's like, look, I've learned how to be content. I've learned how to, to frame my mind in order to foster contentment in my life. Because he recognizes, he says it's learned because it's not the default. The default, you and I are born into this world with a default, and the default is not contentment. So if you're saying, well, I'm not content right now. My three-year-old's not content right now, right? My spouse is not content right now. It's because contentment doesn't come. It has to be learned. This is why he says, I learned this. I saw a really um, funny story this past week um, in um, the BBC, and uh, it was this... I think a great story about the default way that we're born into the world. It was a letter that was written to the new New Zealand's prime minister in the, um, in the letter, a little girl named Victoria, who was 11 was writing to the, to the prime minister of New Zealand asking 
um, for the permission to be given telekinesis so that she could communicate with dragons. This is this uh, girl's official request. She writes this official letter, sends it to New Zealand's government. The prime minister gets it and, and reads it. Inside of this letter, I <laughs> love it, inside of this letter requesting telekinesis in order to become a dragon trainer um, is $3.20 in American dollars. She's trying to bribe the New Zealand prime minister with $3.20 so that the New Zealand government can give her access to telekinesis so she can finally become the dragon trainer that she's always dreamed to be at least for the last 11 years of her life. And the New Zealand Prime Minister writes her a letter back and says, we are very interested to hear your suggestions about psychics and dragons. But unfortunately, we're not currently doing any work in either of these areas. I therefore am returning your bribe money and wish you the very best in your quest for telekinesis, telepathy, and dragons. I love it. This little 11-year-old, that's the default. When you want something, you go after it. You got a hunger for it, get it. Don't question it. Don't wonder about it. Find out who's got it and go get it from them. The most powerful people in my world is the government. I bet they got telekinesis. I'll get it from them. And here's $3.20 to grease those wheels, if you know what I mean. Like, it's so adorable, but it's so human. This is our default, and this is how we approach things. And yet, what does Paul point us to? Paul, I think, splits the hair and is able to avoid the two ditches that are very common in the default human way of thinking. The first very dangerous default way of thinking is the if this, then that way of thinking. This, if I had this, then I would be happy. If, if I had fill in the blank, then I would be happy. Paul doesn't write this letter, I would be content if I wasn't in prison. He's content in prison. This if then is as soon as I get out of debt, then I'll be happy. Or as soon as I get out of my parents' home, then I'll be happy. We all said that. Some of your parents said that about you. Just be real. As, as soon as I get my new job, then I'll be happy. As soon as it gets to summertime, for some of you teachers, then I'll be happy. Right? As soon as I get married, or as soon as I get a new marriage, then I'll be happy. As soon as I have children, then I'll be happy. Or as soon as my children get out my house, then I'll be happy. There's always a then I'll be happy. This what if mindset isn't a, isn't a ditch in the default that Paul falls into. He's learned how to be content in every one of those situations and circumstance. Because when you fall into the ditch and that default way of thinking, if I had this, then I would be happy. You're perennially unhappy. And we're, we're not smart enough to realize it, are we? It, we're like the dog who chases the car, and we never wonder what happens when we catch the car. And so we just assume we mislabeled. Well, when I get in this relationship, then I'll be happy. And then we get in that relationship. And do we question the default? No, we just assume it was the wrong relationship. And we move to the next one. 
Or we say, well, then I'll get that job and I'll be happy. And then we get in that job and then we're not happy. Do we question the default? No, we just assume it was the wrong job. There must be another job. And we leapfrog our life in the pursuit of this thing that's not even attainable. Because the problem aren't those things. The problem is this thing. And Paul has learned that his default works against him. Another one of his mental traps that he avoids that's kind of a default is even shows up in his word choice. He says, I know what it is to be in need. And then I know what it's like to be a plenty, which is a really weird word in the Greek. It means to literally overflow. It means um, in every area of your life, things are just spilling over because you have so much. He's like, I know what it's like to be poor. And I know what it's like to be prosperous. I've been on both sides. Paul was a very influential and wealthy man prior to becoming Paul. He had a lot of power and a lot of influence. He was a rising star in the theological circles in first century. And and that may not sound like a big deal to you, but you have your own little circle that you live in. And there are rising stars in that circle too. And Paul was the rising star amongst all the circles. The greatest circle of the day was the religious circle. And Paul was on tap to become one of the greatest religious thinkers in Jewish history. It's not my opinion that our scholars' opinion based on what they understand about Paul's history and Paul's writing. He was a trilingual genius. Incredibly, incredibly gifted thinker. And yet, Paul says, I've seen both sides and here's what I've learned. I know what it's like to have needs. I know what it's like to have wants. I know what it's like to have the necessities. And I know what it's like to have the niceties. And just the fact that Paul is able to articulate the two difference between those two words, I think is a really important observation. Because for many of us, we live in a culture that constantly confuses the two. Our, our ads, I mean, I love watching, not really, but I love watching advertisements with my daughter because it'll be, uh, we were watching television a couple of weeks ago and there was this ridiculous stuffed animal and they were wrapping it in a tortilla shell. And it was like, a, I don't even know what the thing was. It was like a, a burrito and a stuffed animal had a baby, right? And it's like, the, you know, it's like a chachachito. And it's like a little burrito. And then it was like a little poodleito. I mean, it's just these different stuffed animals. And they just wrapped them in a cloth um, tortilla shell. And my daughter's sitting there and she's watching it. And she's like, I need that. And I'm like, you do not need that. That is the most ridiculous thing I have ever seen. What is wrong with us, right? I mean, like, I'm angry because I'm trying to figure out what is wrong with our society. But she needs it. She's got to have it. And we do the same thing. We need stuff that we don't need. We're oblivious to it. Because we are, the we are even if you don't feel like this, we are the wealthiest wealthiest humans in human history, right? Just to illustrate it, on Fridays, we have movie night in my house. So I come home and I take off my work clothes and I put in my lounging clothes. Like I have clothes for when I do nothing. And then I have clothes when I do something. And then I have clothes when I do something nice. And then I have clothes when I'm going to do something not nice and they can get messed up, right? Like in the ancient world or even today in various parts of the majority of the world, most people have one article clothing. It is their doing nothing clothes. It is their doing something clothes. It is their doing something special clothes. It is all one clothing. 
And we take for granted how all of our life is filled with these necessities that are really just niceties. And the ability to articulate between the two is a powerful tool in forming the way we think around contentment. To know what a need is and to know what a want is, is a really helpful mental delineation. It's something I spend time with my daughter talking about a lot. I'm like, sweetheart, that stuffed animal is not a need. You need water, you need food, you need shelter, and you need clothing. And unless you're planning on gutting that stuffed animal and throwing its skins around you like some ancient form of clothing, it is not a need. It's a want. A want that you won't even remember six months from now. That'll be filled with dust mites, and we're going to be trying to figure out how to smuggle it out of our house when you're not paying attention, right? And so one of the helpful things, even in this way of thinking, is avoiding the two ditches and to even throw it out there. This is something I practice, is the practice of delayed gratification. We live in a day and age of instant gratification. And there are times when I want to buy something that's a little bit more expensive, I will purposely This is the weirdest thing, but I understand the pull of culture is to move me into instantaneous gratification. I will sometimes say, okay, in 48 hours, I'll be able to buy that. Or next week, I'll order that. And the reason why is because oftentimes I'll feel the need well up inside of me that's not a need. And I recognize that in order for me to separate that, I need to take a step back and give myself 48 hours. In order to take a deep breath and realize, okay, like, let's put this thing in perspective. Because advertisement works really well. And the the core of advertisement is convincing that you lack something unless you had this. And that when we choose to drill into that way of thinking and avoid those two ditches, it brings freedom in our lives. And I recognize that in the midst of all saying that, that some of us struggle to even get to this place because we have legitimate needs. We're in financial crisis. We're struggling in the midst of our finances and we have set apart in june 2nd and june 9th we actually um have got together some of the sharpest minds um in the church around finances and we've created a panel and on june 9th june 2nd june 9th from 2 to 4 p.m this panel is going to do a two-hour session it probably won't last two hours but um we're leaving the last hour of the session as q a so that you can bring your questions. Maybe you're early in your journey of getting to financial freedom and you're still working through some of the basics or maybe you're on the other side and you've kind of got the basics down really good but you're wondering about that next step financially and how do you move towards even greater financial freedom with the margin that you have. These these guys are incredibly sharp. And I would encourage you, whether it's starting point on the app or it's starting point where the iPads are um, in the glass in the lobby, to, to sign up today. It's free. There's gonna, we're not going to do or take anything from you. We just want to give you tools, resources, habits, and methods and approach to move you towards financial freedom because I realize that that is a struggle that we have. And this is going to be a really helpful next step for you if you're in that place. But if that's all we offer to you, I feel like we would be leaving you lacking because contentment, that way of thinking actually supercharges all of those habits. But Paul doesn't leave it there. Paul continues. He moves on fairly quickly, and there are subtle little things that he does to move us to that next level. In 201, he gives us not just foundational ways of thinking. He gives us insight to what we should focus in on. 
Um, Paul writes this letter. He doesn't write in this letter a focus on the freedom they have and the freedom he doesn't. Paul seems to be focused on what he still has the power to do. He knows this is learned. This is a choice. And so what does Paul do with the choice that he has? He focuses on what is in front of him. And what's in front of him is a piece of papyrus and a pen. And what does he do? He writes a letter. That's a small thing, but it's significant. If you were in prison, would you be writing people letters, giving them advice how to make their life better? Or would you use that very limited resource you have to, be, to raise money or to make petitions to get out of that prison? This, this isn't eight and a half by 11 paper that you can get by the ream. This is an expensive thing. And Paul chooses to use this expensive thing by focusing on what he has and what he can do for others. You see, there's this idea of the grass is greener on the other side. I think Paul had this, real, this insight that was far better. The grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is greener on whatever side you water it. And when you choose to focus, you water the grass that you have. By choosing to recognize and fixate on what you have in your life, not what you don't have in your life, you're in a position to experience contentment. I saw this, I had a front row opportunity to see this up close on how what Paul is doing in this letter can foster contentment. When I was in grad school, um, I got picked to be the chauffeur for a billionaire who was going to be speaking to students over the course of a weekend. I'd never spent time with a billionaire. That's not something I do in my off hours. Maybe you do. But for me, it was kind of different. Um, You know, like there's a millionaire and then there's the billionaire, like with a B. And this entire weekend, I was going to be driving this guy around. You know, and so he's, um, at this point, he's in his 70s, 80s. He's um, speaking to these various groups, and I'm taking him from place to place to place. And as it got towards the end of the weekend, um, I said, where would you like me to take you? Because we were done. You know, I'm assuming the airport, because your private jet's waiting on you, so that you can zoom on back to where you live. And he um, looked at me, and he had this guy who was traveling with him, this young guy um, that he was mentoring and who would kind of help him with his, like, executive assistant stuff. Um, he, he looked at me and said, take me to the Greyhound bus station. I said, I'm sorry, are you going to buy it? Like, <laughs> what? He's like, no, um, just take me to the Greyhound bus stop. <laughs> and his like, assistant's like, no, he's serious. For real? I was like, time out, man. Like, you, you're, not, you're not from here, I am. The Greyhound bus station is a little sketchy. Like, where I was living, it was like, it wasn't a place you just went. Like, if you wanted, like, drugs, you could go there. But I'm like, this is not a place you, like, people go to the bus stop to get more than the bus, man. I don't know if you know that, but, like, I know that. And I just feel obliged as a person who the police will question first when you disappear to let you know that. And he's like, just take me to the bus stop. So we pull up to the Greyhound bus stop. He gets his little luggage and he wheels it up. And there he is. He's just standing right over there waiting on the bus. Bus pulls up and he hops on and takes him home. And I drive off like, oh my goodness, the police are totally going to talk to me because he's going to disappear. Because I'm the last person that saw him physically alive. 
And then as he drove off, I was like, how insane is that? I bet no one on that bus knows that the old man behind them has so much money he could buy the entire Greyhound bus, like, fleet. I'm like, no one on that bus would believe that a billionaire is sitting right behind them. But I think the key, the reason I dropped him off that day, what was so startling to me is, in fact, not that startling when you learn more about him. Just last year, the organization that he set up in the aftermath of his death gave away almost $20 million to inner-city youth, to foster homes, to scholarships for his employees. I mean, here was a man who every single year of his life gave away millions and millions of dollars, and it was his joy. It was what he loved to do. And so it's not a surprise that a billionaire hops on a bus to go home. Because he had a different way of seeing the world than I saw it at my age. I think he understood that no hearse pulls a U-Haul. No matter how much you have, no hearse hitches a trailer and takes it with you. And that one of the best ways to live your life is not to focus on what you have, not to to hoard it in this greedy encircling, but to actually realize that one of the greatest ways of living your life is through generosity, which is what Paul does. Paul writes a letter to a people to help them grow and to be strengthened and encouraged. Paul is generous in this moment. And you can say, well, in some ways, they're just throwing money away. I know, I think it's they actually understood something, is that you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead of you. You can send it on in front of you through your acts of generosity and through the way you live your life. And this man understood that because Paul had understood that because Jesus had taught him it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's the only words written and attributed to Jesus outside of the words in Gospels, the, the four biographies in Luke's edition called the book of Acts. The only, the only time you find Jesus' words in the New Testament letters is those, those phrases, that, that phrase. And it's as if Paul and the New Testament writers were like, man, Jesus said so much. We tried to capture it in the first four biographies. But you know what? Somebody hasn't picked up on. Remember that time he said that to us? No one's written that down. We should write that down because that was tweetable. That was good. And if you don't tweet it, then no one will remember it. And so they do. They put it down. And I think that that whole series of journey for each one of those men hinged on what Jesus had said, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive, that generosity unlocks contentment. And if you're here today and maybe you're in a place, in a, you're in a stage and you're like, you know what, we have margin, you know, financially or with our time, like we've done well. I want to challenge you to dream beyond just you and your life. And the way I want to do that is I want to give you a little book. It's free. It's small. It's a quick read. Um, and it's a really good book to introduce you to what generosity could unlock in and through your life. Because I believe sitting in this room, listening online, are people who could transform the world through their generosity. People's lives can be different because of your generosity. And so this book, if you want it, all you got to do is come up to me. I'm not that scary. 
just after the service today, I'll be standing out in starting point. I have 30 copies. If more than 30 of you want it, we'll, we'll direct you to the app and we'll get it to you. The only thing you have to do is promise me you're going to read it. I'm not going to give you a test. It's not a book report attached. Just promise me you'll read it. it it'll take about an hour of your time to work your way through it. Um, if you're listening online right now or you're listening offline through the podcast, um, you can have it too. Inside the app, um, in starting point, is the Generosity Factor book. And if you click on that, or if you're in this room and you want the audiobook version or the Kindle book version, click on that app, and we'll make sure that you get it this week. Because generosity is that second level to unlocking and moving you towards contentment. The, the last part, this kind of secret that Paul has, is... The, the third step, it's the 301. And, and to be honest with you, not all of us are going to be able to step into the 301 course. 101 and 201 we can all do. 301 is a little different. Paul, at this point, is pointing us to his Christian faith and what it unlocks for him. He makes the point twice, I've learned, I've learned. And then he says, the secret, which is not a secret when you tell everyone. If I want to tell you a secret, I'm bald. That's not a secret. That's obvious. And so Paul is making a subtle wordplay to pick on some mystery religions that happen to be going on at the time that we don't have time to jump into from a historical standpoint. Um, but Paul says, I've learned the secret, and the secret is this. It's I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul's like, how have I learned to be content? 101, the way I think, 201, the way I focus, but 301, the faith that I have. That faith that I have unlocks for me strength in every situation and circumstance that I find myself in. That faith uncovers and, and supercharges my steps in every single moment of life. In the moment of poverty, in the moment of prosperity, it's present and it fuels me. I can do all things. And as if to make the point explicitly clear, he says right before that, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. He's like, yep, that situation that came to your mind, yes, that's, that's in there too. Any and every situation. There are not some situations that are exempt from contentment. Everyone's possible. Why? Because I can do all things, all this through him who gives me strength. This is not a bumper sticker so that you can play football better. This is not a bumper sticker so that you can get better on your PlayStation 4 or whatever it is you're going through. This is so much greater than a bumper sticker or a little placard hanging on your wall. Not knocking if that's where it is, but this thing has more power than what we have typically attributed it to. When people are like, man, you know, and you got that religious football player, and he's like, you scored the touchdown. How did you do this? Oh, I can do all things through him who Christ. I'm like, no, that was Tom Brady. That was not Jesus. Right? Like, this is better than that. He's saying there is access to energy, to power, to strength that you have never even imagined before. For me, I have seen this play out in my life multiple times, but probably the time that I saw it the most was on Monday, October 10th, 2011. I was landing in Cairo, and we boarded a bus to move towards um, customs. And as everybody was beginning to switch their cell phones on, the whole demeanor, the whole climate of the bus shifted drastically. Because that night, while we were flying through the air, and as we were landing, 
26 um, Egyptian Christians had been killed in an act of violence. Now, that hotel that I was getting ready to board a, a van to travel to was three miles from the square in which this had went down. Now, my daughter would be born December 15th, 2011, and here it is October 10th, 2011, and I am over there to speak in churches and to work with churches for 10 days. And as I land, I realize, oh my goodness, what have I stepped into? To kind of further accentuate the pressure, um, when I meet the pastor I was going to be working with, because I was actually speaking in Alexandria um, for an entire week, I meet the pastor of this local church, and his first words to me through the translator was, don't get me killed. And I'm like, my name is Chris. And his first words is, don't get me killed. Every night I would arrive, there would be a man with a machine gun standing at the door. I was told that if anybody comes into the church building while you're speaking and they're converted, right, which is a very loose term, but anyone who comes in. So if a Coptic Christian decided they want to start attending this church, that's conversion. And you will be arrested. So it's like, don't preach good. Right? I mean, you're like, what do I do with that? And every night I would see that guy as I walked in. Now, you, some of you know this. You've been here long enough. You've heard me say it before. I suffer with OCD and anxiety, panic attacks, and all that fun stuff. Right? And, um, and I had, no joke, about a 10-day anxiety attack. I mean, I just felt the pressure. I felt the weight. There was legitimate concerns like, am I ever going to meet my little girl? Uh, uh, one of the guys that was with me, he was in the southern portion of the country. While he was speaking, armed guards broke in while he in the middle of him speaking and started to arrest and pull people out after they shut the power to the compound he was at. Like, so this was this real pressure cooker for me. And every night, I, I, I mean, just anxiety attack through the day. I was having trouble sleeping. Um, I would arrive at the church. They would sing for an hour in Arabic. I had no clue what they were saying, so there was no inspiration in the songs at all. I would just stand there until the person would give me the nod. And then I'd walk up on stage, and my translator would come up with me. And I would just stand there. I would look at the face of people, and they were terrified. And they were afraid and they weren't sure what the future of their country was going to be and the future of their faith. And here I am. And they want to know, like, is America going to back us? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't talk to the president. Like, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm just me. And I would stand up. And I don't know if you've ever had a panic attack. They're, like, horrible. Um, it's like your entire body just chooses to not cooperate with you. And it's like... It gets off sync. It's like watching a really bad movie where the audio gets off sync with the video. And it's a bad movie to begin with, so you're not even interested. It's just you feel like you're, you're breathing, your heart rate, it's all off. And I step up there, and I'm supposed to give hope to these people. And I remember every single night, I would walk up to the little lectern. It was like this big wooden thing, and I would put my hands on it. And I would say, God, I don't know what to say to these people. I'm... Not even sure I know what to say to me right now. All I feel is anxiety. All I feel is panic. All I feel is pain. I just want to be home. I just want to see my wife. I just want to meet my little girl. 
But you're bigger than even this nation and this government. You're larger than the the tragedy that happened a few days ago. And you've brought me here because there is peace that you desire to bring. And you picked me to bring it today. And so here's my body, here's my mouth, here's my words. Speak to me and speak through me. And then I, something crazy would happen. My, my, my panic attacks would lift. My body, I would stand up. The energy would flow in. And all of a sudden, for the next 45 minutes, I would speak with power. I would speak with clarity. They were like my best sermons I've ever preached. I went back to the notes recently being like, what was it that was so, because I remember I would see hope like rise up on people's faces. There was this one part in Isaiah 40 where I'm like going through it and I'm like, you know, preaching and like me and that guy, we're like, woo woo, mind meshing. And it was so good. And it was like, man, this is awesome. And then I go back to my notes and it's like a post-it note. There was like nothing on that thing. There was nothing to help me to recycle or to repeat and preach that because I'd never preached that over here before. And I was like, man, that was so strong. And then it's like a post-it note. That thing might as well have been a recipe for French toast because it had nothing to do with the sermon I preached. But what I experienced in that moment and what, what became real to me in that moment was this passage in Philippians 4 is true. And it's not just true for me, it can be true for you, that maybe you find yourself in a situation where you're walking through a relationship and you're not sure that you can go five more months or even five more days. And I'm telling you that there is a God who is able to give you strength for the step for five more minutes. He didn't give me the energy to last all week. He gave me the energy to make it through that message. And the moment I said amen and I would walk back to my seat, whoosh, the panic attack would come back. And then the next night it would come back, I'd get up and I'd pray and boom, it was gone again. I'd preach and the moment I was done, bam, it came right back. That he may not give you strength to last the next five months, but he can give you strength to take that next step. And here's what I know, the secret between a breakdown and a breakthrough is one just stops moving and the other one doesn't. And that there is a strength that he can give for every single step that you can take through your addictions, through the struggles financially or where you are as a family, with that child that is driving you insane, with that boss who is making you crazy. In every single moment, he can give you step for that moment, strength for that moment. Is it hard? Yes. But the secret is, is it's not just you. Maybe you can't do. That's okay. Paul didn't say, I can do. He says, he can do through me. And so if you're in a moment like that right now, and maybe you've had some honest assessments, like, I can't do this, then good. That's okay. But that's not all there is to the equation. There can be more in store for you. Because there is a power source greater than you, ready to fill you in this moment. And all you have to do is ask and step. Ask, then step. And that that moment, the way we want to respond today, in our last five minutes together, is to, to sit in a song 
that just gives you words to give voice to that prayer and that statement that Paul said. Because Paul's encouragement to you and I is no matter where you are, if you're a high school student, a college student, whether you're in your first marriage, whether you're wondering if you're ever going to make it through this marriage, whether you're in financial crisis and you're wondering if ends will meet, it's a song to give voice to us, to call us to a place called contentment. A place where we can have security and stability and confidence regardless of the circumstances. And that you and I today can move, whether it's into the 101, to the 201, or to the 301. All of us can take a step towards contentment in our lives. And that in that place of contentment, we can find peace. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you are exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.